0: To donate to The Historian's Podcast, click the GoFundMe button on our website, bobcudmore.com. This is The Historian's Podcast, highlights episode number one for 2022, with excerpts from seven recent episodes. I'm Bob Cudmore. You can scroll down on our website, bobcudmore.com, and you'll come to episode 404 from January 7th, 2022 and you'll hear new york city attorney jim Kaplan talking about evacuation day which was november 25th 1783 the day that british troops left new york city after the treaty of paris was worked out finally ending the american revolution
1: by the morning of november 25th 1783 it was decided that the British would leave and Washington's army would march down Broadway to take control of the city, which he, of course, never had been able to take control of during the Revolutionary War. Uh, he signaled that he would not enter Bowling Green, the site of the original Dutch fort in lower Manhattan, and the historical center, uh, unless the American flag was flying from the flagpole there. Mm-hmm. So this was uh, you know, quite a ceremony. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, what happened was the, the British Union Jack, the British flag, was flying from that flagpole at Bowling Green. And the idea was the American advance guard would take it down. Uh, but there was a problem. The British had greased the pole in one uh, act, of some say act of ill grace. So it was virtually impossible for the American advance guard to pull it down. Uh, and Washington wasn't going to come into the city when the British flag was flying. So this, in a sense, could have been a monkey wrench in the whole little ceremony. Uh, but however, I, John Van Arsdale, a young Continental soldier, bought cleats from a local hardware store, climbed the flagpole, shimmied up the flagpole with his cleats, and removed the British flag. Uh, and an American flag with 13 stars and stripes was flown in its place. And everybody cheered. This was, in a sense, a great uh, symbolic victory for the Patriots, a final symbolic victory. And Washington then continued his triumphant battle, much to to the march to the oldest part of the city that he'd never been able to retake in
2: battle.
0: Jim Kaplan and others are working to revive interest in celebrating evacuation day.
2: This is Jerry Snyder of the Historic Amsterdam League. We're going to talk about our latest publication for 2021, our booklet on Amsterdam's arts, discussing the artists, dancers, musicians... Photographers and those involved in the various arts here in uh, the Amsterdam area and the history of uh, the arts programs in our city.
0: Historic Amsterdam League member Barbara Persico did a lot of work on this booklet.
2: Barbara did a tremendous amount of work on this, and I, I can't give her enough credit for it. Barbara, this is this is one of the areas that Barbara has a very strong interest in is is the arts and. Uh, I give her a tremendous amount of credit. She did she did so much research on this book and so much of the writing for the book and everything. This is this is really her book. We have contribution by a number of other people, yourself included, uh, for the writing. But she did she did a vast majority of the work on this book and uh, getting the, digging up the information for it. And she's had she's had a background in a number of the art things here. Uh, her family and friends and stuff have been involved in a number of uh, art things throughout history of this of uh, a number of uh, musical productions here with uh, Burt DeRose and so forth. So she's she's been involved and she has a number of contacts mm-hmm. in it, so it, it was a natural for her and she just dug right into it and took off with it. So give her a tremendous amount of credit for uh, for helping uh, get this book actually into, uh, into reality.
0: Now the book does deal with singers also and actors and dancers and photographers and musicians and writers and uh, even a cartoonist, and also uh, talks about the radio, TV uh, industry locally. But I'd like to start with the artists themselves, because one thing that's interesting about uh, this booklet is you have a middle section where you display the artwork of the artists, uh, the visual artists that you describe.
2: Yes, yeah, th- this is this was a first for us. We actually incorporated an additional color section in the book that we haven't done previously. And we have, a, we have a section, we can call it the gallery in the center of it. And we were actually able to uh, go and uh, find a number of uh, paintings and illustrations by uh, the local artists. And we put together a, a gallery, basically uh, a miniature art gallery, so to speak, and a number of the artists from the local area and uh, display their paintings in uh, the center portion of the book and full color and that really made a uh, really made a hit with the people that have seen the book they really think that that's uh, that's a very nice approach to do it and a number of the number of the paintings that are actually on display there from local artists we've actually been able to line up and when we do eventually have our program uh they will be on display at the walter owen museum (laughs) as part of the art show which we're tying in with with our exhibit that goes with us
0: I was very interested in the visual artists section of this uh, booklet, in large part because I don't know much about that. I mean, I I have written about it in my uh, history columns or some of the uh, uh, artists like Mary Vanderveer. But for example, one of the things that struck me was uh, the artist uh, and high school principal, Bob Turner. I mean, I I know he was a high school principal because he was my high school principal. But if you were to ask me, maybe before the book came out, and what was Bob Turner, what did he teach? Oh, I don't know, social studies, English. I really had no idea the man was an artist. I, I, I,
2: well, I only knew about Bob Turner from the fact that my mother also had spoken of him. Obviously, my, my mother... Uh, closer to your generation going to school. <laughs> yes, Bob. she is. And yeah. uh, she had talked with him, and my mother was was very interested in art, too, when she went to school. And she always used to talk about him and how he had uh, helped her out with, with her interest in art when she was in, when, in high school.
0: That's Jerry Snyder of Historic Amsterdam League.
3: My name is Devin Lander. I'm the New York State historian, and it's an honor for me to be a guest on the Historians podcast I think probably the most important thing that I'm working on right now is related to the 250th anniversary of the American Revolution, which is coming up very quickly in 2026. And we have been working on planning and the creation of a commission at the New York State level. Uh, And I've also been working with America 250, which is the national commission and organization tasked with commemorating the 250th at the federal level
0: being a i don't know what a stickler for some kind of detail i kept thinking to myself well what do they mean by the 250th watt so it sounds like what we're uh, commemorating is the declaration of independence uh 1776
3: Yes. Well, that's somewhat up for debate. So the Federal Commission, again, called America 250, is essentially commemorating the Declaration of Independence, 1776. So their main focus is going to be on 2026. Now, many states, including New York, are looking at commemorating the entirety of the Revolution, so 1776 to 1783, And in some cases, like New York again, and Massachusetts is another example, are even beginning their commemoration uh, a little bit earlier. So the commission uh, legislation that has recently been signed by the governor actually begins the commemoration in New York State in 2025. So that would be 1775. And there's many debates as to uh should we start earlier or <laughs> sure, should we start <laughs> okay. later um but um I, I think that's a good uh it's a good uh time period to focus on and um obviously um you, you know including ac- actions leading up to the declaration of independence and then of course in new york we have so many Relevant sites and uh, battles and uh, entire campaigns were waged during the, the Revolutionary War itself. There's many things to talk about uh, every year, really, going from 70,
1: 1775
0: to 1783.
1: February 20th of 1922. Colin Hager speaking. This is radio station WGY in Schenectady. W for
4: wireless, G for general electric, and Y for the last letter...
5: The Alexanderson Alternator, invented in Schenectady under deadline pressure by General Electric scientist Ernst Alexanderson, made possible the first voice transmissions over wireless in 1906. These broadcasts were made in Canada. General Electric Schenectady Shop received an experimental land radio license in 1913. Broadcast experiments were conducted in 1921 in Schenectady and WGY signed on February 20th of 1922. Our references tonight have primarily been to the time when GE owned WGY. GE sold the station in the 1980s. WGY was the first radio station to solve a major criminal case, the 1923 kidnapping of Ernst Alexanderson's six-year-old son. Alexanderson's inventions made early radio possible. When his son was kidnapped, the inventor pleaded for the boy's safe return over WGY. The broadcast was heard by Bert Jarvis, House Island Islands, over one hundred and fifty miles from the station. The child's description fit that of a boy brought by a man and woman to the summer cottages where Jarvis was caretaker. Police were called, and soon young Werner Alexanderson was returned to his parents. Radio Broadcast magazine carried the headline radio repays its genius
0: radio rapidly changed the media landscape in the 1920s within 10 years of wgy's 1922 sign-on radio was entertaining and informing a national audience irma lemke croman who used the on-air name martha brooks became an actress in wgy drama productions in 1931 She was a major personality, writer, and director on WGY during the Depression, World War II, and the post-war era.
5: During the war, for instance,
4: if I would walk down the street, people would run out of stores and hand me a bunch of money and say, buy me some bonds. I didn't know who they were. They trusted me utterly and completely. It was a very interesting situation, and I had to fulfill that trust, and I did it to the best of my ability. No one can ever know what WGY meant to the people of this area during the depression years.
5: One man's family,
4: because they didn't have money to go anywhere, and they hardly hardly had money for food at times, you know. But they had W-G-Y. And that meant a great deal. This was an anchor. Sure. Pieces of copper and bits of steel, needles that flicker and tubes that glow, and antennas strung from towering spires. Modernist magic. Radio. From it came the news. From it came entertainment. From it came education. From it came hope. Because when Roosevelt became president, It was over this station that you heard his, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Speech. This is one of the things that our station did. We have always stood as a kind of a giant in this area at WGY. Uh, I remember when Pearl Harbor came, it was our station who broadcast the first notice of that in this area.
5: We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii by air. President Roosevelt has just announced.
4: And I was so stunned, I was was at home. And And my first uh, desire desire was to get to the station where I knew the action would be if there was going to be any action and to help. But here in this area, it was our W.G.Y. who told people of this. G.Y. was the carrier of all of this in this area. In times that were bad or times that were good, people turned to WGY for the information they wanted. And we, people who were here, were the people who were part of their families. We were like cousins, aunts, uncles, relatives. They really lived with us.
0: WGY News anchor Mike Patrick recorded scores of podcast interviews with WGY veterans, The podcasts, called Wireless, can be found at WGY.com. It's also been publicized on Facebook. WGY, in this year, uh, did a series of programs on the anniversary day, including one with longtime radio host Joe Gallagher, the broadcast of a radio drama, and a conversation with the head of Schenectady's museum, MySci, which has a display on WGY in place until May.
6: This is Jim Martin. Actually, my full name is James Kirby Martin, and I'm the author of a biography about Benedict Arnold. Uh, It appeared about 20 years ago and is still very active, still sells a lot of copies even today, uh, entitled Benedict Arnold, uh, and it's really about uh, his military career focused on his military career as a revolutionary general. Anyway, it has now been made into a two-hour documentary. Uh, the documentary is uh, out and available on various streaming services, including Amazon Prime, Vudu, iTunes, uh, and a bunch of bunch of other ones. Uh, it will eventually appear. and and various other streaming services and uh, will be presented on Fox Nation in May uh, upcoming. So uh, this particular production is two hours, and uh, uh, it's uh, out and available. It's reviewed very well, and it's somewhat controversial because it does bear the title Benedict Arnold, Hero Betrayed. Now, it doesn't have a question mark there because one of the points is to deal with that particular matter and that is, if we put it this way, did Arnold betray the country, or did the country perhaps betray him before his betrayal in return?
0: The documentary that Jim Martin's referring to, Benedict Arnold Hero Betrayed, stars Peter O'Meara. And three men from the Mohawk Valley area created the documentary Niskayuna native Chris Stearns, Saratoga Springs native Tom Mercer, and Fort Johnson native, Anthony Vertucci.
6: What we tried to do in this documentary, and by the way, it is narrated by a well-known actor, Martin Sheen, Mm -hmm. and uh, what we tried to do was to get uh, the audience involved. We're going to present the evidence. That's a very, very important part of the process because so so many times in, in Arnold's situation, the evidence is not presented. There's just a bunch of conclusions that he was this really bad guy. But if he was really bad, then why did he do all these good things for the revolution? And what we tried to do was balance those kinds of issues off, because when you look at his military career on behalf of the Americans, it's absolutely outstanding. George Washington did call Arnold his best fighting general, uh, and that's a virtual quote that is almost direct. And so what we're really trying to do is to get the audience involved look at the evidence. How bad was this guy? Or maybe he did do good things. Maybe his life wasn't just all bad. Maybe it was really a tragic life. These are the kinds of questions that we try to raise. And we ask the audience to look at the evidence, study the issues, enjoy the film, because it's meant to be entertaining. And at the same time, it's also meant to be very honest uh, in the portrayal of this very, very controversial American. Let me add that the Benedict Arnold name is one of the best known in American history. I once saw a list where he was among the top, what was it, five or ten mm-hmm. best known names in the history of the United States. And uh, so it's not a it's not a, a, a subject of little consequence, actually. It's a subject which is uh, really, in many ways, at the heart of understanding not only Arnold, perhaps more broadly, Uh, the realities
7: of the American Revolution. Hi, I'm Peter Betts, a former county historian and former uh, Gloversville Leader Herald uh, correspondent, and we're going to talk about a number of things related to local history today, and we're going to start off with a discussion about uh, a recent, uh, very happy success story about how we got a grave marker for a veteran whose grave had no marker.
0: Peter Betts is also a member of the Town Council of Perth and president of the Perth Centre Cemetery Association. Perth is a town in the Adirondack foothills near Broadalbin, Amsterdam, Johnstown, and Gloversville.
7: Yes, that's, that's true. Uh, we recently reconstituted a board to govern the cemetery, but the main cemetery is the one right opposite the uh, uh, Perth Middle School, and across the road from the town hall, right uh, on uh, 110, just uh, west of uh, Route 30.
0: And oh, it's on Route 110, and it's called the Perth Cemetery in general.
7: Well, the official title is Perth Center Cemetery Association.
0: You found a veteran, and maybe more than one, had been buried in the cemetery. Uh, but without a headstone, how did you find that out?
7: It was by accident, actually. We were in the cemetery last, early last fall. We were cleaning up and you know, sweeping up, and just a group of us uh, volunteers. And uh, one of them happened to mention as we were passing by, and they just said, "Oh, there's uh, such and such's grave, and he doesn't have any." any monument at all. I said, by any chance, is he a veteran? And the other person said, I believe he is. So I got on the computer and I looked him up and discovered that, yes, he was a veteran. The whole family was uh, were Perth people in the previous generation and uh, also in his. My first concern was he deserves a gravestone, either a stone or uh, one of those uh, uh, brass markers uh, or those brass plaques that you can get. The uh, federal government will give either one, whatever they choose, either the regular standing erect stone or a brass marker or any veteran that has no grave marker, which mm-hmm. I knew, and I kind of thought most people knew. Apparently, a lot of people don't. When I made contact with uh, the daughter of this gentleman, I asked her if when he was buried, uh, had not the funeral director told them, you know, that they were entitled to this. And, uh, she said, no, they the family knew nothing about it at all. They didn't uh, have surplus money to come up with one, and it had bothered her, she said, for a long time. I managed to find her using the newspaper uh, index, uh, com that you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, got a phone number on her and called her up, and we just took things from there. The stumbling block, I would have done it myself, uh, but the stumbling block was that we had to have a, a death certificate, and the only people who can get a death certificate are, are relatives. Uh, I, I needed to find a relative. So uh, that's how I stumbled around and finally managed to find <coughs> this lady. And uh, I don't know if you want names mentioned or not. Well, how
0: about just the name of the, the veteran? I, uh,
7: his, uh, yes. Uh, what is uh, his name? His name is Howard Forgett. F-O-R-G-E-T-T-E. F-O-R-G-E-T-T-E. Mm -hmm. Uh, He served in the U.S. Army in Korea from 1956 to 1958. He was a welder in the GE for most of the rest of his life.
0: A good deed done. Peter Betts also has word on his podcast of a program on immigration being done at the Fulton County Museum, which is located in Gloversville. And Peter has another story that of a Sackendoga Park bear who used to be relied on for weather forecasting, groundhog style. You can support the Historian's Podcast by donating to our fund drive. For more information, press the button on the GoFundMe link on our website, bobcudmore.com.
8: This is Jim Colfart here. I'm an amateur aviation historian, live in Oneida, New York, and I've curated and researched a number of local stories that have a, an airplane twist to it. I have three programs. Uh, the first one is obviously Airplane Tales, which is spelled T-A-L-E-S, kind of a nice little wordplay there. That's what I thought I would talk about today. These are all anecdotes that have stories, incidences, and accidents that happened around our region pertaining to World War Two military aircraft which is my wheelhouse
0: we have one more topic on this highlights episode here in 2022 a series of airplane tales told by jim colthart who has a collection of world war ii aircraft incidents and accidents with ties to central new york
8: in fact one of the things that i found out and i will be touching on it uh, later on in the program bob is is the fact that, that everybody thinks of Rome Army Airfield or Rome Air Depot or what eventually became uh, Griffiths Air Force Base, but a lesser-known uh, aspect of aviation was the use of the Syracuse Airfield. Um, and a lot of training, largely transport aircraft training, took place uh, at uh, at Syracuse.
0: Is, is Syracuse still in use for that purpose?
8: It, it is, uh it is now Hancock Field, and I, they used to be home uh, to the uh, the boys from Syracuse. And uh, they flew the last thing they flew were F-16s. I understand it's now a, uh, a hub for uh, drone aircraft. Uh, really, Syracuse. And occasionally, you can come as you're coming and going. When I was working in Syracuse on a day-to-day basis, frequently I would be coming back onto the the on mm. from Route 81 and see uh, a drone coming in for either landing or takeoff at Hancock.
0: And the Griffiths Air Force uh, Base that you mentioned, that also has been, what shall we say, repurposed. Um, who was it named for? And you know, it's Griffiths Air Force Base. Who was Griffiths?
8: Mm-hmm. He, it was named for Townsend Griffiths, who was the, one of the first, was the first uh, officer airmen killed in action uh, in World War II in Europe, he was a Buffalonian, and mm-hmm. um, and unfortunately, when you get things named for you in the military, it's usually because you met your demise. Uh, it's not anything that usually is granted to to living people. So that's how Townsend Griffiths, uh, Griffiths Air Force Base, was named.
0: Where, well, is Griffiths located?
8: Griffiths is located in the city of Rome, in the northeastern part of Rome. Interesting anecdote about that, Bob, was the original plan for putting an airfield was going to be in the Utica-New Hartford area. Approximately where the Slocum Dixon Medical mm-hmm. Center is currently located, and there's a a uh, Home Depot uh, in a business park there. Mm-hmm. But it was deemed at the last moment that that area that was going to be staked mm-hmm. out for the airfield was not uh, adequate. Um, so the uh, whatever political machinery worked, they located it, uh, relocated it to the Rome area for for uh, what became. Griffiths. So, mm-hmm. uh, what, what was uh, it
0: in World War II? I mean, the airfield existed, but I don't know if it was called Griffiths.
8: That's correct. It was initially called uh, Rome Army Airfield.
0: You've been listening to Historians Podcast Highlight Edition Number One for 2022 with excerpts from the following episodes Episode 404. Jim Kaplan on Evacuation Day, November twenty-fifth, 1783, the day the British left New York City, finally ending the American Revolution. Episode 405, Jerry Snyder of Historic Amsterdam League on the arts in Amsterdam, New York. Episode 407, New York State historian Devin Lander, discussing plans to observe the 250th anniversary of the American Revolution. Episode 408, WGY Radio in Schenectady celebrates its 100th anniversary. Episode 409, James Kirby Martin is executive producer of the documentary Benedict Arnold Hero Betrayed. Episode 410, Historian Peter Betts explains how he was able to help a Perth, New York family acquire a gravestone at no cost for a deceased family member who was a U.S. Army veteran. Episode 411, Jim Colthart, an amateur military aviation historian with stories about airplane incidents in central New York. You've been listening to the Historians podcast. And I'm Bob Cudmore. You can listen to all of these podcasts by going to the main page of the Historians. You find that online at bobcudmore.com.